So we are in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, 2 Corinthians 9, uh, and this chapters 8 and 9 are both on the subject of generosity. So you've heard of Murphy's Law, I think we're all familiar with that, right? Murphy's Law goes, if anything can go wrong, it will. There are lots of corollaries. There's even one that says Murphy was an optimist. Uh, but we've all experienced examples of this. If you drop a piece of toast, it was guaranteed to land butter side down, especially if you're on carpet. Um, if you're waiting for a repairman, no matter how long you wait, he will come the minute you get in the shower. If you take your car to the mechanic, whatever problem it had will no longer be existent when the mechanic turns on the car, every time. And if you invite a friend to church, the preacher always talks about tithing. Have you noticed that? When I was in seminary, Carrie and I uh, attended Wedgwood Baptist in Fort Worth, and the pastor there was Dr. Al Meredith. Uh, Dr. Meredith was an interesting guy. He kind of looked like a brother of Steve Martin. He had the same premature gray hair and uh, kind of the same features. He was from Michigan and had been a history professor when God called him into the ministry. And he was one of the best preachers I'd ever heard. Um, you would think that someone who came from academia into the ministry would be stuffy and elitist, but he was not. He was an excellent preacher. And I remember the, the Sunday I heard him preach on giving. And it was not at all the kind of giving sermon you heard. He started out by saying, I just want you to know, I am not giving this sermon because I want to raise or because I'm worried about the church budget or anything like that. He said, whether you give or not matters not to me from a financial standpoint. God is going to take care of the Meredith family whether you give or not. He always has and he always will. And then he said, the reason I'm preaching on this is, number one, it's in the Bible. Number two, because it's in the Bible, I know it, it matters for your own soul's benefit. In other words, it's not about what you can do for the church. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He can provide in any number of ways. And that's why the excuse of saying, well, I don't have much to give anyway, doesn't really matter. Because God's not dependent on us. What matters is what happens in your heart when you give. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Just as a reminder, Paul is writing to the Corinthians about an upcoming collection for the Jerusalem Christians. The Christians in that city, unlike the, the Christians in Corinth, at this point, Gentile believers, they were seen as a little odd by their neighbors, but there was no real persecution. But the Jewish believers were ostracized by their fellow Jews because they were seen as turncoats. They were following a crucified man. They were believing in uh, what was seen as heresy. And so it was very difficult for them to make a living. If you owned a shop, most of your Jewish neighbors wouldn't shop there. If you were a laborer, most of the employers wouldn't pay you, wouldn't hire you. So you can imagine how hard it was. And so Paul is gathering this collection of all the churches that he has planted all across the Mediterranean, modern day Greece and Turkey. And his hope is not just to bless his fellow Jews in Jerusalem, but to bring these two groups together, Jew and Gentile. And so Remember, the Corinthians had said a year earlier, yeah, we'll contribute to that, but they never have taken up a collection. 
And Paul is writing to initiate that. So again, this isn't about tithing so much, although you can apply the same principles. Paul's not talking to him about giving your 10%. He's talking to them about going above and beyond. He's talking to them about helping someone beyond what you give to your local church, you might say. There is more giving to be done. And because of the situation between the Corinthians and Paul, he's treading lightly. Now, next week, he's going to turn full blast. There's going to be a shift in his tone. But for now, he is very gentle in his manner. You'll notice. So in verse 1 of chapter 9, he says, Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry of the saints, for I know your readiness of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. So he's saying, I've been bragging about you to the people in Macedonia. I've been telling them what good givers you are. And that has inspired them to be generous. Then he says in verse 3, But I am sending the brothers, we talked about this last week, he's sending a, a detachment along with Titus, three other people who will go alongside him to, to maintain accountability. So there's no doubt about where the money went, that it was handled correctly. He's saying, I'm sending the brothers so that out, our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. So you can sum, summarize all that in saying, listen, I know I don't even have to write to you about this. I know what kinds of people you are. I know you're going to be faithful to keep your promise. And you know how bad it would make me look in the eyes of all the other churches, if I've been bragging about you and you, you let me down. And you don't want that to happen. And besides, it would make you look bad. You don't want to be the only church on this whole circuit that doesn't contribute. You see, it's a, it's a very persuasive argument, but it's also very gentle. He's not accusing. He's not threatening. He's just saying, I know you want to give. This is called positive reinforcement. This is, this is a gentle way to handle. And like I said, next week we'll see the ungentle way. Next, he turns to the question, what happens when we give? What can we count on happening? So two things. Number one, we see that when we are generous, God blesses us in return. You need to be careful with this point. This is a point that's often misused and misunderstood. But here's what it says in verse 6. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So uh, whenever I read that verse, I think of a story I, I read some years ago, and this was written by a, a missionary who'd spent his life on the field in Africa. And the place where he lived, the people there farmed, but it was very hard to raise crops. He told about how you know, they, would, they would harvest so much, they would harvest just enough to get through the winter, and then they would keep the rest for seed, for their grain. And so he told the story, he said, every year the same thing happens. A little boy or a little girl will be looking around, uh, you know, late in the season before it's planting time, will be looking around and will find their daddy's bag of seed grain. And will come running in and say, Dad, Dad, 
Guess what? I found food. Well, we won't have to eat just a tiny little bit at night. We've got tons of food. We can, we can eat, have all we want to eat and we can go to sleep and we don't have to have our tummies rumbling. It'll be great. And the dad will have to carefully explain, now son, if we eat that, there won't be any grain next year. We have to keep, we can't eat not even any of that, not even a little bit of it, because all of it has to go in the ground. The more we plant, the more we'll be able to eat next year. But if we eat it now, we will have nothing left. And you know how hard that is for the mind of a little boy or a little girl to grasp. And we're that little boy, that little girl. And we sometimes can't understand why God doesn't want us to just have everything that we've earned or been given and spend it all on ourselves. Why wouldn't we? I mean, that's what everybody else is doing. And God says, yeah, but if you, if you, if you consume it all, then you've got nothing left to plant, nothing left to sow, nothing left to invest in the work of the kingdom. And that's what verse six is about. He says in verse seven, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, this is a verse that I, I think most people have heard. Maybe you didn't even know it was in the Bible, but you've heard that God loves a cheerful giver. And it's been misused, although not the way a lot of these other verses are misused. A lot of these other verses are misused by the health and wealth gospel people. We'll talk about that in a minute. But this verse, I think, is misused by Christians who say, well, if God loves a cheerful giver and I'm not cheerful when I give, then I guess I just shouldn't give. Now, it makes perfect, you're laughing, but it makes perfect sense to you when you're saying it to yourself. You're saying, well, I'll wait until I'm cheerful and then I'll start being generous. Because after all, God doesn't want someone who gives under compulsion, that gives out of guilt or out of fear. And that's an entirely backward way of coming at it. So if God wants us to give, but he wants us to give out of a cheerful heart, if we don't have a cheerful heart, if we're grumpy, if we're miserly, if we're cranky, if we're selfish in what we do, then that's the problem we should address. Not by not giving, but by confessing that before the Lord and saying, Lord, what's wrong with me? After all you've given to me, why can't I get excited about giving back to you? So that it's what it really is, is it's exposing an idolatry in your heart, the idolatry of money. Because remember, in the book of Colossians, it says that greed is a form of idolatry. An idol doesn't have to be a statue you bow down to or the God of another religion. An idol is anything that controls you other than God, anything you feel like you can't live without. And so when we feel like I can't give cheerfully, well, there's a reason for that. It's because you've made an idol of your possessions, of your finances. Verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. This is where that idea comes from, that people say you can't outgive God. That uh, the righteous are never seen begging for bread, as it says in the book of, book of Psalms. Uh, so if you are a generous person, another verse from Proverbs says, he who is generous, who is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. So if you're kind to others, you find that your needs are met as well. So when he says you have all sufficiency, it means you can count on the fact that God is going to take care of your needs if you trust him. And you might say, well, so does that mean that I should just give away everything? 
That's not what it, that's not what it's strictly commanded. There's only one, one person I see in the scripture that's commanded to do that, and that was the rich young ruler. But I don't think any of us are in danger of giving too much. You understand? Maybe you are, but I'm not. I need to hear this. I need to hear that God's going to take care of me if I give more than I feel comfortable giving. If I step up to help someone, even though I think, well, I, I don't have all my needs met. I, I don't have everything I wish I had. And yet I'm, I choose to, to help someone else. God's going to know that. God's going to take care of me. Verse 9, as it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. And I know you all know this. But whenever in the New Testament it says, as it is written, it's always quoting from the Old Testament. And if you've got a good study Bible, it'll tell you what passage. And if not, there's this great thing called Google. You can just type it straight into the search bar and it'll tell you what verse of Scripture that is. And the reason I mention this is, most of us, and I include myself in this, when we read the Bible, we usually have so many chapters to read. And so we want to get through it quickly. And we don't stop and say, okay, why did Paul quote that passage? What is he saying? And, and I think that's a shame because the opportunity we have is in seeing how the apostles handled the Old Testament. The way the Old Testament is handled by the first Christians tells us how we should look at it. In this case, Paul is quoting from Psalm 112. He's quoting a psalm that says, the man who is generous, uh, I'm sorry, the man who is generous, that's proof of fear of God. The fear of the Lord issues in or, or results in a generous heart. And that's not something we often consider, is it? We think of a person who fears the Lord as being very upright and devout and, and conscientious and not, not uh, saying bad language or you know, doing dirty things. We don't often think that a person who is fearing the Lord is open-handed and generous and doesn't turn people away who need help, who genuinely need help, and is there to contribute when there's a, a, a movement among the people to, to address a certain issue. And they may even lead the way in that issue. Hey, we all need to do something about this. this. This person just lost everything in a fire, or this neighborhood is in decline, and we can contribute to the local industry, and we can help, we can do this and do that. Open-handed generosity is one of the results of fearing God. That should be one of the signs. In verse 10, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Now, I mentioned the health and wealth preachers earlier, prosperity gospel. They love that sentence that says you will be enriched in every way. Uh, some, they even like it better in the other English translations that say you will be made rich in every way. Wow, what a promise. I remember uh, seeing one of, these, one of these preachers being interviewed and he talked about God's incredible promises of wealth and prosperity in the Bible. And he mentioned Solomon and he mentioned Abraham and uh, the interviewer, he didn't expect the interviewer to know his scriptures. The interviewer said, yeah, but Jesus had no money at all. And the apostles just, they, they, never had, they never had wealth. Those first Christians, most of them had nothing. And those who did have something, they gave it all to the church to 
keep the whole thing afloat. And this uh, preacher said, well, I was thinking more of the Old Testament. This is a Christian preacher who, who didn't know how to integrate Old and New Testament and understand when God, when, when chapter, when, when 2 Corinthians 9-11 says you will be enriched in every way, you got to read the rest of the sentence. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. In other words, you can't look at the script. I know this goes against what you've heard. You can't look at the scriptures and say, okay, I'm going to follow God's plan to get rich in an earthly sense. And that's not to say that, uh, that Christians don't sometimes end up being wealthy. There are some people that are good at making money. There are some people who are, who are very, very good at a position or a vocation that happens to pay a lot. You know, others are good at being school teachers or being blue collar workers or other positions. But, you know, you may be someone who's outstanding in business or in law or in medicine or in research. There's all kinds of ways that a Christian can make lots of money, but that their wealth didn't come from the fact that they were a good Christian. You understand? Because if that were the case, then every devout Christian would be financially wealthy. And that's nowhere promised in the scriptures. You can't get that from there. Instead, we see you'll be made rich in every way to be generous in every way. I take that to mean when God wants us to give, he supplies us with the means to give. We'll have enough to help in every way God wants us to help. I, one of the best books, one of the most challenging books, I hate to even mention it, you're gonna read it and you're gonna hate my guts for it because it's so convicting. But it's a book called The Hole in the Gospel by a man named Richard Stearns. Richard Stearns is the president of World Vision. Some of you are familiar with that ministry. He's been the president of that for years. Uh, but he wrote this book. We read it, my former church staff, about 10 years ago, and it just kicked us all around the room. It's, it's about how we can't say we care about the lost when we hoard our money. It's not enough to pray for missionaries if we don't give, if we don't support the work. Um, and he told a story to illustrate this. He told about back in 1987, and that's, I realize, quite a while ago, but there was a big financial crisis that year. There was a big drop in the stock market. And it meant that Stearns and his wife looked at their portfolio and suddenly they'd lost half their savings in a single day, including all the money they'd saved up for their kids' education. And this drove him crazy. He wasn't making big money, but he was very careful with his money. He was hoping to put his kids through school and leave them with enough when he died. And now most of it was gone. And so he had a very stressful week. Every day he'd get home from work and he'd, he'd sit down and he'd look at all these charts and he'd strategize and he'd plan on it. He made some terrible decisions, called his uh, investment guy and said, well, sell the rest because I don't want to lose any more money, which was the worst thing he could have done. And, Anyway, in the midst of all this, getting an ulcer, losing sleep, his wife sat down with him and she said, listen, I want you to understand you're, you're, you're worrying yourself to death. I just want you to know we're okay. God's going to take care of us. And he's, yeah, yeah, that's very nice. Thank you. I'm glad to know you're not mad at me for you know, losing all this money. But... And then she said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take out your checkbook. I want you to write a big check to our church and then a big check to each one of these ministries that we support on a regular basis. And he said, 
why? We just lost half our money. And she said, well, because that will, that will show us, that will remind us that it's God's money anyway. And maybe, maybe you won't be so worried then. Maybe you can sleep at night. And he did. He got out his checkbook and wrote all those checks. And he said, sure enough, I slept well after that. Didn't worry about it. Now, he doesn't say he got all his money back. I don't know how that turned out. I just know that that's what it means when it says we will be enriched in every way. This is not an investment strategy we're talking about here. There are those, and there are wise people who can tell you how to invest your money well, and if you avail yourself of their knowledge, good for you. But this is not about how to get rich in, a, in an earthly sense. This is about trusting that God is going to provide everything you need in order to be generous in every way he gives you the opportunity to do. So those are the things we can, we can trust in. We're, we're going to be blessed when we give. I have never met a generous person who was an unhappy person. Never. I've, I've met a lot of wealthy people who were unhappy. I've never met a generous person who was an unhappy person. And I, I stand by that. I think there's a joy in giving. Um, and now... The other thing that happens when we give is we become a blessing to others. Our blessing draws them to the Lord. Verse 12 says, For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. For by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. What is he saying? He's saying that when you give, when you help others, either directly, when you go, your, your neighbor just lost his job and you come by and say, listen, don't tell anybody this, but I'm going to pay your light bill this month because I know you're having a hard time. I won't tell anybody. You don't tell anybody. Or you give toward a cause of some kind. Whatever you give over and above, whatever you give issues in glory to God because people realize God is real. Some of you could tell stories, I'm, I know, uh, of times when you were struggling and someone showed up and said, you know, God just laid it on my heart to give you this and it was just enough. It was exactly what you needed to pay that bill or to get one more month rent. You can tell stories of how God provided. And that it's just a beautiful thing when you get to be God's instrument in that way. That's what Paul's promising you here. They will give thanks. They will praise God for the way He has provided for them through you. And remember, remember the command of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. I... Uh, I think most of you know by now that I, I went back and pastored the church I grew up in. It was my first church that I ever pastored. And there was an, an old couple in that church. She had been my Sunday school teacher when I was a little boy. Um, he was a wealthy oil guy. Well, wealthy for our part of the world. Um, and they used to give to the local children's home. And every year they'd get their pictures taken and they'd be on the front page of the paper giving their money to the youth home. Well, he passed on. I came to be the pastor there. She was invalid. She couldn't come to church. And she one day called me to her house and said, I want to give a whole bunch of money. 
And I don't remember the exact amount. I remember it was an, an amount about equal to half of our annual budget. So it was a substantial amount for that little church. And so, you know, I was 26, 27 years old. I sure didn't feel like I could decide for myself how that money should be spent. And I remember having a big meeting with the whole church body and saying, okay, this money's been given. Um, how should we spend it? And came up with several ideas and we voted on it. And then somebody said, now, you know, Jeff, when her husband was alive, they always got their picture in the paper whenever they gave to the youth home. Don't you think we should do something like that? And I said, well, you know, I don't know if she wants that. I just know that Jesus said, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. I don't want to take her blessing in heaven away from her by publicizing it down here on earth. I don't know if I was right about that, but I felt good when I said it. I felt like that was the right thing at that moment. Be careful. Yes, they will thank and praise God for the way you have provided or he has provided for them through you. And you will be blessed as long as you don't make it about yourself. Verse 14. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for His inexpressible gift. So there's two thoughts in there. First of all, they will long for you and pray for you. What is he saying? He's saying, when you're generous to them, they're going to be generous to you. Not necessarily in a financial sense. Remember, he's talking about a specific case here. He's talking about people in Jerusalem who were poor. They're not going to be able to pay back this debt in finances anytime soon. That may happen in the future. What he's talking about is their hearts will change toward you. Remember, there was conflict between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. First letter Paul ever wrote is the book of Galatians. You know why he had to write the book of Galatians? Because he had gone through the region of Galatia there in modern day Turkey and had planted these new churches and won these people to the Lord. And then Jewish Christians had shown up and said, yeah, but y'all aren't really saved because you're not following the law of God. Your men aren't circumcised. You're still eating vile Gentile foods and, and you're not following the, the codes and, of the Sabbath and all the things that we follow. And Paul... Well, you want to read a man getting mad, read the book of Galatians. And so there's this animosity, there's this suspicion, there's this sense, you know, they, they had the Jerusalem conference in Acts 15 where they decided, okay, led by the apostles, James especially, the brother of Jesus, saying, listen, those Gentiles don't have to follow the law. Let's establish it once and for all. And yet you know there were, there were Christians in that Jerusalem church who said, I don't care what James says. I grew up following the law of Moses. They should have to follow the law of Moses. And so in their minds, these Gentile believers far away who they've never seen before, they're second class at best. But now, when you're barely getting by and someone shows up and says, the Gentile churches of Asia Minor and Galatia and Achaia and Macedonia have given this contribution so now you can live comfortably. You don't have to worry about where your next meal is coming from. Do you think that might change your attitude towards these other people? Isn't it interesting? I know I'm getting into a different territory now, but isn't it interesting whenever you talk about people who are different than you, if you know somebody like that, they're fine. But from a distance, it's all those people. Those people. Especially a big mass of them. Well, there goes the neighborhood. One of them just moved into our community, right? 
And that's the way it was for these Jewish Christians. But Paul is saying, when you give, it's going to change their minds towards you. They're going to pray for you. They can't give financially. They're going to pray for you, and they're going to long for you. In other words, they're going to hope for the day when y'all get to see each other. And that's exactly what Paul is wanting. And then when he says at the end, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift, he's talking about Jesus. That is the gift of God. So what does that have to do with any of this? You know, for Paul and every other apostle, the answer is always Jesus. What does Jesus have to do with this? Well, Jesus is God's greatest gift. And if God is willing to give the best of what he has to us, how can we hold anything back from him? See, the great thing is, you know, I said earlier, does God really want you to give up everything? The great thing is, you know that your father loves you. The Holy Spirit's inside of you. He's not going to ask for anything that you need. He's going to ask for what he knows you can live without. You can trust him. You can write God a blank check and know that he's going to fill in the amount that is necessary and no more. So some of you uh, know of a man named Paul Powell. He was a, a pastor in East Texas for many years. Later helped start Truett Seminary. So he's a Baylor guy. He liked to tell the story of the man, and I can't remember the man's name now, who gave a whole bunch of money to Baylor in the, in the late 20s. And then the stock market crashed. The depression hit. And this guy, like so many people, lost everything. And so middle of the 30s, this guy was invited to the campus by the president of Baylor and said, you know, I, I just want you to see what your, uh, what your contributions gave, what your contributions produced. And so he walked onto the campus and he showed him, see that building over there? Your, your money built that. And, and see those students over there, they're, they're in school today because of a scholarship you endowed. And, and as he walked him around the campus, he said, you know, I, I, I wanted to bring you here to cheer you up, but um, I, I just have to ask, do you ever wish you hadn't given that money? I mean, now that all this has happened, now that you've lost everything, do you wish you would have kept it? And the guy said, absolutely not. He said, because everything I kept for me is gone. But everything I gave to God is still here. It's all around me. And that's what they call the treasure principle. Randy Alcorn has a book on this. Whatever you keep for yourself, it doesn't last. Whatever you give to the Lord lasts forever. Don't lay up treasures on earth, but lay up treasure in heaven. That's, that is the best investment strategy of all. So let me pray for us, and, and y'all will have a wonderful week. Heavenly Father, we thank you that when we were most in need, you gave the very best of what you have. You gave your only son, and he was exactly what we needed to rescue us. Father, I thank you that many of us could testify that we have far more than we need in this life. And we thank you for that. Many of us could tell stories of times when we didn't have so much, when we were struggling and wondering where our bills were going to be paid, where our, where our funds were going to come from, and you always came through for us. Lord, I pray that we would be generous whenever we can. For those of us who have much, help us to be greatly generous. For those of us who have a little, I pray that we would be as generous as we can and do it with joy in our hearts. Father, change us. Lord, send our hearts where our, our treasure goes. For it's in Jesus' holy name we pray.
Amen. 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 Thank y'all. Have a great week.